Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel we have Steve Edwards. Hello from a sunny and cold Portland. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at, oh gosh, it's oof, kind of freaky outside. Must be the inversion. Coming at you live from the inversion. <laughs> the inversion. Now we'll have to explain what the inversion is. Dan Shapir. Hey from Tel Aviv where it's 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. You tell me whether that's hot or cold. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And before we introduce our guest, I think I will explain the inversion really quickly. So in Utah, a lot of folks live in valleys. Uh, AJ and I live in the same valley. And what happens is, is you have warm air in the valley and the cold air comes over the top of the valley. And so the cold air wants to go down, the warm air wants to go up. And so what winds up happening is it traps all of the pollution under the layer of cold air. And so then we all get to breathe our own fumes. We have a special guest this week, and that is Gil Fink. Gil, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? So hello, everybody. I'm Gil Fink. I'm currently a owner of a company, a boutique consulting company called Sparksys. I'm a Microsoft MVP and a Google GDE for web technologies. I'm coming from Israel like Dan. <laughs> Nice. Tired of explaining your absurdly high big tech cloud bills to your boss? Let me tell you about this cloud infrastructure company that's the talk of the tech world. The name is Volter. That's V-U-L-T-R. They pack high performance cloud compute at a price that AWS and the other big clouds can't compete with. So reap the benefits of advanced networking features, managed Kubernetes, developer-friendly API, and 20 global locations offering elastically scalable computing power. Over a million users have deployed on Volter in 60 seconds or less across 12 pre-selected operating systems with their own ISO, with pricing starting as low as $2.50 per month for Volter Cloud Compute. They offer plans for developers and businesses of all sizes. You can try Volter for free today by visiting volter.com slash jabber, and you'll receive a $100 credit. That's vultr.com slash jabber. Yeah, I invited Gil over because we happened to meet in the context of a web well, a conference. Let's call it a technology conference that took place in Israel a while back, right at the end of 2021, called the Reversim. And we were both scheduled to speak there, but then Gil had an incident. Yeah. Uh, <gasps> Unfortunately, uh, COVID-19 caught me and then the whole family. And uh, currently we're well and we're not sick anymore. But uh, I have a uh, coughing uh, from time to time. So if I'm coughing during this show, I'm, I'm sorry. It's not me. It's COVID. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, I had to cancel the my session, but I recorded it uh, and the people can see it uh, in the YouTube channel of uh, Reverse Sim Conference. Unfortunately, not live in person, but uh, yeah. things happened. And I, I have to say something very, very uh, interesting about the, the session and the topic, because the topic was uh, fighting, uh, sorry, using uh, data visualization to fight COVID-19. And the speaker didn't <laughs> arrive to, to give the talk because he had COVID-19. Okay, so oh, this is uh, irony in its big irony. <laughs> well, the, the other irony is that the uh, Omicron arrived and basically threw all these strategies out the window. So, <laughs> yeah, but that that's the way we fight this stuff, right? Is we gather information <laughs> and then try and revise where we're at and what we think will work. Yeah, in this case, we gathered all the information, looked at it, and then basically gave up. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we'll survive. Uh, the human race. If, will if you survive. hear me coughing, I had COVID last. Yeah, week. well, we survived so. worse than that. We survived the Black Death, didn't we? I mean, uh, we didn't survive it. No, we personally Other people did. did. It. Yeah, our ancestors. <laughs> our ancestors. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, being being the nitpicky uh, one that cares about the way words are used, I don't think anyone here ever had COVID. They had SARS-CoV two, because <laughs> COVID is a disease. That needs to be diagnosed by a doctor, which generally is a complication that results from SARS-CoV-2, which means, for example, you contracted pneumonia and probably had to be hospitalized. Well, lucky, lucky, lucky me has not con uh, contracted it in any way, shape or form so far, at least as far as I know. And we hope yeah. you won't get it. <laughs> ah, I, I you assure know. you that's, uh, that's not fun at all. <laughs> I wasn't that sick this time around. Oh, yeah? You got it again? <laughs> yeah, well... So in Utah, there was a testing shortage. So they asked us not to test unless we needed to know what it was. So we didn't die. And since I wasn't <laughs> that sick, but everybody in my neighborhood had it. All the people that I go to church with had it. So I'm assuming that's what it was. It could have been something else, the cold or the flu, but it really wasn't that serious. We just stayed home and except for the funeral we went to yesterday. So You remind me of a friend of mine who got like, was really feeling under the weather, had the shivers, had the fever, had, had coughing and so forth and kept on testing himself and always coming up negative and said that he basically couldn't understand how that could be. And I said, well, you know, there still is the common cold. It still yeah. exists. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> there is flu out there, yeah. like in every uh, winter <laughs> season. <laughs> yeah, I fully acknowledge it could have been something else. Yeah, It seems like um, everybody else was testing positive that had it. So. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that you didn't have SARS-CoV-2. had my too. symptoms. Yeah. No, I agree. Anyway. We are way off on a tangent. Let's talk about <laughs> Linux architecture. Way off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's our topic for today, right? That's what we decided in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think Gil said that he loves iframes when we were prepping for this episode. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to bring I said back that on my website. It gives me a, a very big shiver, like having a, currently a disease. A warm blanket. Such thing. There, there you go. <laughs> Put a neck warmer um, on. It'll make you feel better. There we go. <laughs> I was wearing one just before the show. For those of you who don't get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I. by the way, are we live this time or not? I don't see us live on the YouTube channel. Yeah, I was just um, looking there too. I didn't see it. It says I will play with Riverside. Nah, well, let's just keep on going. Well, yeah, let's just keep going and we'll see what we're seeing. So, Gil, you, as yeah. a, I guess that given your the kind of jobs that you do, that you do consulting gigs for various companies, you get to mess around with the architectures of a lot of companies or different architectures that you encounter in different places? Not only encountering, but also imposing uh, architecture. Because uh, currently, for example, I'm doing uh, something like uh, in the last uh, one year, one and a half year, I'm working with the company and we are building a user interface for a huge machine, huge press machine for press uh, uh, offices and things like that. And... Then most of the architecture of the front end there is uh, my own. So either I'm coming and I'm seeing different architectures and, and I evaluate them and uh, try to help the, the, the companies to uh, find the solutions for things that they didn't do well or doing uh, new projects or helping as a front end architecture for new projects to, to build 
some uh, something new or something interesting so given that can you maybe start by maybe even defining for us what an uh, architecture for the front end actually means and how is it different from just saying MVC okay so saying MVC is uh, is uh, it's kind of an architecture okay but uh, when I'm uh, evaluating or when I'm coming to a company and I'm uh, they are most of the people that uh, I talk with says something like we chose react this is our architecture we chose react we chose redux and boom this is uh, my our front-end architecture but that's not that's not architecture that that's just technologies so when you are picking technologies you are doing something this this is the first thing pick technologies but when a project is getting bigger and bigger over time then only picking some redux or react and saying this is our architecture it's it's not going going to stand the and it's not go it's it's not going to scale so when i'm saying architecture i'm saying how the data flow goes how communication between different models happen in our application how our modules are built do we divide the or vertical slice the entire front end to different logical parts we give do you give those parts to different uh, teams and etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is the the kind of things that uh, you need to ask yourself when you are starting to building a project if you need those things or how do you are going to build those things and then you can come up with some sort of ideas of how to build your architecture and mvc is one solution but it's not only the, the only one <laughs> out there well from what i've seen in many cases a lot of organizations certainly not all but a lot not well, quite a number that i've encountered kind of punt on the front-end architecture basically their architecture is You know, they can talk about the backend architecture because they've got all sorts of microservices talking to one another. They got this database and that database and whatnot. But the front end, well, that just makes some restful API calls, get some information and more or less just renders it out. So what does it actually mean to have an architecture in the context of the front end? Okay, so what does it mean? First of all, you need to understand all the moving parts in your front end. It's like you're, you're looking at the, a web page. A web page is built upon different logical parts. You can divide those parts into different models. For example, I can create a search model in the application or uh, some customer's model in the application and then create different visualizations to those parts. And you can divert some team, front-end team, to work with those parts. And so once you divide the, the application into parts, it's, it's, it resembles uh, microservices in the backend. You have different parts that communicate with one another. And those parts, when you're composing them, you are creating your application. You can do that in different kind of ways, you know. Charles said iframes. Yes, iframe is one of the solutions that you can create. You, you can divide all the parts into different iframes, and then you can create those parts with different frameworks. You, you know, the, the, the idea of micro frontends, for example, is something uh, that uh, uh, we're hearing a lot of uh, a lot uh, during the, the last uh, three or four years. So 
there are different ways to create micro frontends. And once you're really dividing or thinking about your application in, in, in boxes of logical parts, then you, we, you will need some communication option. In some companies, the communication is between the, the different parts is, you know, created using Redux. I hear, I see it a lot. And it's it's not a good idea, in my opinion. In other applications, like in the application that uh, currently involved, we created really a, you said MVC as a, something like a curse, but uh, it's we created the containers and each container, which is the, the smart components, for example, includes a logical part of the code inside some controller that talks with services and those services are gateways to the the backend this the same controller also talks with mobix we use their mobix as technologies to talk with or to 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 get the the information or the data that the the smart component needs and the smart component is just spreading data uh, to the dumb components underneath so this this can be looked at upon some how you can create some closed system to to handle some different logical parts in your application okay so why would you bother do such a thing you know you can just create uh, your web page with uh, from bottom up or down to top with the react redux uh, whatever why to divide it so or why to use such an architecture for example like the the that project can i because, can i stop you for a minute cuz Yes, I, you're kind of talking your way around a question that I have, and I, I'm hoping that you can clarify it here. Okay. So a lot of people, they treat React like their architecture, right? It's like, well, mm-hmm. I'm just going to architect all this stuff into components, right? Vue or Angular kind of have the same ideas around organizing code. So why is that or isn't that enough? Because you need to understand that the components need to talk with the one each other. And mm-hmm. the, the idea is how to decouple the components in the components tree. I when you are creating your entire web page, you can create a created top to bottom with one component that hold the hold the entire page, and then a lot of uh, different uh, components there. And you can spread all the props in React, for example, all the props down the props drilling uh, mm-hmm. until the until the leaves. Or you can use some Redux or some Mobix or things like that. But this is not architecture. This is just component composition. Okay. Right. So when you have component composition, it's a good idea. Okay. I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to compose components, but where do you put the communication with the server? Where do you do things like we used web sockets and we wrap them with the RxJS? And we need to get notification from the machine. I said we're building a press machine, a big uh, big machine. We have a lot, a lot of notification that comes from the, the server. Where do you put that part? How, or how do you inject those uh, notification or say to the, where, whatever you put your data uh, for, for the, the current, current component or things like that? So you need to think about those things. And if you're not doing separation between those concepts, data, mm-hmm. services, components, then how do you test this thing? I, I know that uh, a lot of people say, ah, oh, we, we, we can do use uh, u- unit tests on the, 
on services or things like that, then they, it's, it's fine. Or we are not going to do any unit testing. But in some projects, like in the project that I'm involved in, we're testing components. How do you test a component in isolation mm-hmm. when you have relations or coupling with the, your data source or Redux or right. Mobix or things like that? So this is why we broke things a little farther and we put most of the logic in React hooks or in services. And we're testing the hooks and the services and all all the things that React is doing for us is just rendering, which is what React was created to do. I React wanna, is right. just yeah. a r- library for rendering. I, I wanted to add is, to that something that you also kind of mentioned in passing, which you know initially seems like something really, really bad, but it's just the reality of things, and and it's the way it is. That very often architecture of complex systems is dictated by how your organization is structured. Basically, you say, you know, show me the components or the the large-scale, at least, components that comprise some uh, software system, and and I can usually, fairly straightforward way, map it to your org chart. And one, and now it seems silly. Like, why is HR effectively dictating the architecture of our software? But in the end of the day, very often that's just the way that it is. And given that that is the way that it is, you want to, that's another motivation to minimize the coupling between different systems within your uh, software system, between the various subsystems. Because every time you have coupling, you're creating a dependency between one group within your organization and another group within your organization. And since they are working with different uh, plans, they have different sprints, you're creating a situation where one group can get stuck because... Uh, another group that they are dependent on st- on stuff that the other group needs to do for them because otherwise they just, for example, can't get at the data that they actually need. And for example, in React, you you, you can see these sort of things where you need to kind of propagate props through parent components to the child components if you're not careful. And that means that the parent kind of needs to know what it's this or what all its descendants need to know in order to perform their operation, and that creates potentially a very tight coupling. And again, if that parent component is owned by one team and one of the descendant children child components is owned by another team, that other team that is responsible for the child component, if they need some additional piece of information, they can't actually even get it until that parent component provides it to them and they're kind of stuck. And that's where you need to think, for example, about how data can flow through your system in ways that reduce such couplings. Would you agree with that, Gil? I agree. And prop drilling is uh, its uh, something that is, re- is known uh, not only in React, but also in uh, the other frameworks like Vue and uh, Angular. And that's a, that's a problem. And once you, the parent need to know because the parent is the component that gives all the props to its children, it needs to know what each and every children needs, then you have a problem. You don't have isolation. 
you have coupling between the parent and the and the child component. And in big hierarchies, for in for example, you you can have a parent ancestor that is uh, like uh, 13, 15, 20 depth um, levels. Right. Uh, sorry. Uh, so and in React, there is a solution that is called context. So there are those things, but context also is uh, something that gives you some coupling on some inner internal React uh, me- mechanism in order to to deliver the, the data to the child components. So it, from one side, helps you to avoid prop drilling, but in the other side, it gives you much more complexity to organize your code. And this is why uh, libraries like uh, Recoil and Mobix are very successful because they are trying to move you away from those ideas, the, the idea of drill all the props down the to the bottom of the tree or to use some tools like, I'm going to say it, but uh, I don't use React in the last uh, one, 1.5 years because Redux, I have very different opinions about it. I won't get into it because it's a good, it's a good library, but it's, it's solving only one thing. And from companies that I was consulting in, it be- became a big, big problem. Okay. Well, so yeah, what I've seen with, with Redux is that it, if, if it, especially when it's taken to the extreme, it creates a situation where you put, you're effectively putting all of your state inside this uh, gl- well, effective a, a single huge store, which is effectively a global object, and or the- you can say it uh, in memory database. Yes, it's yeah. like the entire database from your server will one in one point of the application lifetime will sit inside your memory in your front end. This is one thing that I see a lot that developers forget to clean the Redux store from time to time and then you get memory flood it's not memory leak because it's like you're just using tons of memory to hold your entire database or some slice of the database in your front end so yeah and this I, is one yeah and I see problem two, in redux and i see two additional problems with that so for obviously the one that you mentioned Another one is that you don't longer, you no longer have a single source of truth because there's, it's not an obvious guarantee that your local copy of, of uh, the data that is stored within your Redux database will be identical to the one that's, that's stored in the central server, as it were. Uh, so you can get consistency issues. And the other problem is that that database is globally available and accessible by every part of the system. And if we go back to the issue that I mentioned before, where you create situations where one group is dependent on another, and let's say group one is dependent on group two to provide the information, but group two is busy and group one is under pressure to deliver, well, guess what they'll do? They'll bypass group number, they'll bypass that other group. They'll, they, they can access that global data store, so they'll just go ahead and access that global data store. And now you've created an, a non-obvious coupling between that component and the structure of the data in the data store. Another option is that I've never they done will that. use different, <laughs> different way to, to hold their state. For example, I, I saw in the same project using uh, different tools like combining 
context because they someone had to hack something because the other group the other team wasn't was busy as you said in an application that uh, is redux based so yes th- these these are these are major problems that you can see and this is why solutions like microfrontends that gives you vertical slices in your in your application on uh, and dividing your uh, front end into different vertical slices is more it becomes it's become more shiny to companies because you have only one ownership for each logical part the team that is building that and the team is very specific working on the you know you said the in hr or or things related to hr for the, the application that uh, is built but in the situation that i have in where we don't have a uh, different dif- different teams we have only one front end team uh, we we had problems with the uh, things like uh, the back end uh, wasn't uh, created faster fast like we created the front end and we had a lot of issues to build the front end without the back end so we created like a simulator layer to simulate the entire uh, back end to to solve that problem for example so but going back to that so let's say i i decide to buy into that micro front end type approach of creating strong separation of concerns between the different components and and avoiding a, some sort of a centralized data store that everybody can access to directly and instead that kind of means that i need to create some sort of a data bus if i want to share the information between the various components so what what is your general approach there do you do you implement some sort of client side data bus or do you be, just have every component talk directly to the uh, back to the back end okay so what what you're referring to as data bus is a if some sort of event aggregator so we 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 use the we, we created the uh, you, you can call it a, a, an event aggregator in our application it's a, it's a just a one place that each and every module can sign to listen to different events that other modules are are sending and if nobody is listening to those, to to some event that the, the that the, the module is publishing then nothing will happen if somebody somebody's uh, meaning uh, another model is listening to to the published uh, event it will do something and yes uh, most of the time it you will have to to have some sort of some mediator that will ha- will be able to mediate between different different parts different models this is one way to look at it another way is to to say okay i want to divide my entire application to not logical parts but web pages and each web page is like uh, my uh, my entire model this is not you creating vertical slicing but a rather horizontal slicing of the application and this can create some difficulties between teams if some team needs to use some component from other team that is building a, a, another web page so whenever those problems comes then you will use uh, another way of of implementing micro frontends which is a shared component layer but um, basically again going, have, going back to yeah. that 
event bus or pub sub mechanism or whatever you decide to call it so so I'm kind of kind of amused that you're sort of on a, at least on a small scale implementing kind of a front end or client side uh, Kafka system or something like that. For those of um, you who don't know, by the way, Kafka is uh, is an event uh, system that is very popular on the back end. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I need to understand whether you think it's a bad idea or <laughs> whether you think it's a, a good idea. Well, as, as in all... <laughs> it depends. In all things, the devil's in the details, you know? Yeah, you need, to some, you need some sort of way to communicate between your components. And either you do that with prop drilling or you do that with the data flows, unidirectional data flow, for example, using Redux or Mobix or other libraries out there that support this unidirectional data flow. Or you use a data flow with the no coupling, which is event aggregator. You you pick the the things the, the thing that you want to to use as some sort of way to communicate between your components. Okay, this is this is this is uh, something that you will have to pick in the project that uh, I'm currently involved in. We're using we're using uh, Mobix as the way to do unidirectional data flow. In a different project that I'm doing for another company currently, we we are creating an entire shared component layer with uh, web components on one hand, and we have event aggregator to aggregate events between those those uh, components. So as I as I said, there is no one solution to to the problem of uh, communication between components. But each and every company will probably choose what fits to their needs. I can assure you that the company that has the shared component layer with the event aggregator, the the idea is that each and every module in their application needs to be decoupled from everything. Everything there is very modular and uh, every module can be replaced by different models. And this is why they went that way. In most of the, the applications, you're not creating some generic screen that uh, uh, can be manipulated uh, by the, the user. You have what you're going to create, so there is no need for some massive decoupling. And this is why companies that don't need event aggregators goes to unidirectional data flow, which is a good idea to, to make a consistency of the data inside your front end. Can you briefly explain what unidirectional data flow actually means? Okay, so unidirectional data flow, the idea is that data flows only on one one way. Most of the, in most of the applications from bottom, uh, sorry, from top to bottom, okay, this is like, uh, you you don't have two-way binding, meaning that uh, the screen isn't updating the data or vice versa. The the data is updating the screen. The data is only flowing on one direction. And that that direction is from the data to the screen. If the screen needs to notify or change the the data it shows, it sends uh, some action or some sort of notification to some store or whatever. How do you implement that? 
and that stores up uh, do some manipulation and uh, notify the screen that the data changed and send that data back to the screen. So the data is always uh, having only one cycle and you don't have two-way binding, meaning that the data can be updated from different parts or the the parts can update the data, vice versa. I'll add to that, that uh, if we go back a couple of years, the concept of data binding was really popular. It was popularized even before the web, and a lot of early web frameworks kind of adopted that because that seemed to be the way that most people wanted to work. It kind of seems to make a lot of sense because, for example, you display a particular screen of data which matches a particular record in in a database. So you've got the different screen elements being mapped to different fields within that record. And usually you could also go back or forward a record so you can you could edit, edit the table in that way. And basically the, the data from that database record was read and, and displayed directly on the screen. So that's the flow in one direction of flow of data. But then also, if you updated any of those fields on the screen within that form, that would immediately automatically update the data back in the record. So effectively, you had a a one-to-one binding and matching between the particular screen field and the field within the database. So that's what is meant by data binding. And very often, you might actually even bind the same database field to multiple screen elements. So for example, like a situation where you're showing notifications for unread content, they might appear in different places on the screen. So you actually bound all of those items to that same uh, field and clicking on any one of those items would impact that field, which would then automatically impact all the rest of the visual items that were linked to it. And that would create situations in which data flow became really complicated and it could, and you created all sorts of race conditions between, you know, when certain items were just updating on the screen and in the database. And, and that's where that single direct, unidirectional flow of information tries to, to address those issues, so, but adds complexities of its own. <laughs> right. Of course. So. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So uh, my question is, is let's say that I decide, you know what, 
I don't need this mediator in the middle. I've got I've got a relatively simple, simpler app, right? And and my problem set lends itself much more to this other architecture. And then, as all things do, my app gets more complicated, right? It it has more things that need to keep track of more things and other things that need to keep track of things that come off of those things. And I start thinking, you know what? That mediator is really sounding good right now. It it seems to really kind of fix some of these issues that I'm running into with my app. At what point do you start playing with either going hybrid or making a migration from one architecture to another? Because at this point, the one architecture is now making more sense than the architecture that I started with. And I made the right call this at the beginning, a, right? Because I didn't over-engineer it to begin with, right? Yeah, but this is a good uh, good question because moving from one architecture or non-architecture mm-hmm. to an architecture, <clears throat> it can be very cumbersome. It's not uh, like uh, mm-hmm. I'm uh, taking a magic wand and uh, waving it and uh, everything works. A lot of things in the application will break or will will not function whenever when you're starting to to try to decouple things. My suggestion is uh, going from bottom top, meaning mm-hmm. that uh, you start with the 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 bottom uh, components in your in your application, meaning all the dumb components which are easy to create or to move back to move to the the architecture. But it's uh, it's like taking some part of of uh, the web page and starting there okay as i said vertical vertical slicing start with just one main component uh, which is some part of the the, the web page and try to tackle it and impose the architecture there and then from there go on and migrate another part another vertical slice in most of the the application that i'm currently building we're starting with building some shared component layer, either in React, Web Components, Angular, whatever. That shared component layer helps to uh, remove some difficulties when you're doing those migrations. So it's a good idea to start with divi- dividing your your application when you're starting building it, it into the UI layer, into the shared component layer, into a package for gateways, and whenever you have those three moving parts, then when you build your application, it will be, I won't say simpler to migrate to a new architecture, but it will help you to do the, the migration. And I can, I can say something about, it's not only migration to architecture, it's uh, sometimes it's migration to technologies. I had mm-hmm. the, the pleasure I'm doing that, that thing <laughs> Air with, with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the pleasure of helping some big, uh, big enterprise to combine two different applications into one. One of them was created with AngularJS with uh, like 5 million lines of code. And it had to hold a new application that was created with Angular back then. It was Angular 5. Mm-hmm. And we had to migrate the entire Angular JS code. And the manager said, uh, yes, uh, do it in uh, the one month. Go. Oh, so, wow. Uh, so uh, <laughs> this is where the iframe thing came. And we created the iframe around the 
the, the application that we wanted to migrate around and then uh, said to the managers, yes, we did the migration. Okay, it's working inside the, the other application. Everything is fine. And then we took like seven months later uh, to migrate the, the entire thing. Okay, so it's not only architecture migration, it's, it's a problem to do migration in a whole. Uh, it's like moving from one technology to another. And so, as I said, you, you start with small parts and then you start to, or you move to the higher or bigger parts of your application later on. I totally agree, and I would even take it a step further and say that from my experience, if you're going to re-architect a system, and it doesn't matter if it's from one architecture to another or from no architecture to an architecture, then the at the end of the day, the best bet is basically to bite the bullet and rewrite the system. So the, the case... Oof. The case, the situations in which I've seen, in which they've tried, in which an attempt was done to impose a different architecture on an existing system, usually ended in tears. Now, if you're lucky, like uh, Gil said, maybe you can kind of slice up this operation into steps. So, for example, you might mm-hmm. convert it one screen at a time. So let's uh, and and in that regard, it is very much like going from one architecture to another. Let's say. You have some sort of application that was written in Amber and you say, hey, I don't want to use this technology anymore because it's really difficult to you know, recruit the developers. They don't want to use this framework. They want to, do, to go React. Then one possibility is just to switch you know, one page at a time. Just change it that when you switch from this page to that page, you kind of switch to the other system. And then you slowly grow that other system to take to eat more and more pages to take away more and more pages from the existing system. Or like like Gil said, maybe you can kind of uh, embed an iframe and kind of stick one system inside of, inside of the other and then grow that iframe up until you effectively, <laughs> everything in the page is within that iframe and then it's no longer an iframe, it just becomes the page. So the, the, so, app. the app, exactly. So maybe you can do these things, but at the end of the day, it's a rewrite. That's kind of the reason why picking an architecture is important. But like you said, Charles, it could be that you picked one architecture at a certain point in time because it made that perfect sense at that time. And then it doesn't make sense anymore. I can tell you that at uh, Wix, for example, the what is called the Wix viewer, which is that part of the product which actually displays the websites built by Wix's customers. And obviously, it's a large and sophisticated system. During my time at Wix, you know, I, I was there for seven and a half years, it was rewritten from scratch twice. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Rewrites wow. are painful too, though. And that's that, that, that's why I'm kind of cringing over here because I'm going. Yeah, but when we had yeah. an attempt to take in, uh, so after the first rewrite, we needed to really change the data flow within right. within the system for a good reason because we changed the, the requirements for the product. It became more interactive. Mm-hmm. And initially, an attempt was made to kind of re architect 
the existing solution, it, ba- yeah. it barely held water and, and we, we needed to rebuild it in order to get the, the performance and functionality and, and the flexibility that we wanted in the system. Yeah, it seems like there's, because I've seen people do kind of like what Gil outlined in that, hey, we, you know, we had Angular 5 and we moved it, you know, I've seen that work, right? And sometimes your system is kind of set up that way, right? So if it's loading, yeah, a page at a time, or you can move stuff into an iframe and expand the scope of the iframe. But sometimes it's it's at a fundamental level. And that's what Dan's talking about, where it's, you know, we need this to actually work differently than it does now, right? It's not just these neat slices that we can pull off or something like that, right? where you can kind of get away with that in a lot of cases if you're replacing one framework with another. In this case, it's, no, We at its core, it has to do different work in order to get the job done. Yeah, you're probably going to have to rewrite it. But And uh, what I can say is don't be afraid of rewrites, but uh, your managers are going to be afraid. <laughs> yeah. Well, well uh, I think the they're problem, trade-offs. The problem with rewrites, and I think yeah. you've, you've already addressed this, is that most rewrites are never completed. Most rewrites result in two code bases that don't get the attention that they need and both are buggy and not getting the product mm-hmm. to where it needs to be for the customers. So what yeah. happened at Wix in that regard is that we were really strict about it. Basically, a time frame was set, acceptance criteria were made, lots of tests were written, and there was a deadline specified to when the old code base needs to die because the organization can't handle supporting both. But it was a very significant effort, undoubtedly. So I I wanted to bring up two questions. One is, when do you make the decisions for what the architecture should be? We've talked a lot about changing midstream, but somebody made a decision in the first place that you had to go back and undecide and redecide, right? So yeah, let's let's go with that first. First of all, I I think that whenever you start a project, you need to, to realize that you will have some sort of architecture. You need to, to do it as part of the starting point of the application. It's not enough to pick a framework. It's a it's a good idea to pick a framework. React, Angular, whatever. But it's not architecture. We see. We we said that uh, in, at the beginning. So what uh, what I suggest is do it uh, whenever you you creating your high level design of the the application. You need to start at the beginning. If you're not going to do that, you you can uh, say to the to the developers that are currently building, uh, and this is what what I'm doing currently doing in. In a, in a project, I want to see the design details of the feature that you are going to build before you are going to implement it. I don't want you to go uh, like horse with the with the blinding uh, blinders. Blinding, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to rush to development. I want you to tell me how you are going to implement it in terms of communications between the component who which and which component are you going to use or implement how you are going to do that and once you are doing that then then uh, I'm uh, validating the the design that the, the developer is doing and giving my input and only then I'm telling them you can proceed you can go and you can implement the feature so 
you can think about designing features as some sort of an architecture or architecting step inside your development cycles okay so if you don't have a high level architecture like I said in the beginning of the the project then you can do some sort of small designs or small architectures parts uh, meetings in in your group when you are creating the application while you're Uh, doing or you're creating some feature in the application I would add to that if it, it yeah makes it, it makes a lot of sense and I would add yeah. to that that not making a d- decisions about architecture is an architectural decision your system is going to have some sort of architecture <coughs> whether you design it or not the only question is how cohesive it is or or, or how messed up it is. And if you don't, you know, because data will need to flow through your system, there, is the, there are going to be application states. So if you're not going to be designing it from the top down, it will kind of evolve from the bottom up. And, and like Gil said, if, if making a cohesive long-term architectural decision is problematic for you, then one thing you can indeed try to do is try to split up The, the things into self-contained components that could later you know line up better with whatever top-down architecture you decide to impose or at the very least when when you're forced to rewrite your system at least you can take those components and copy them from the previous code base to the next code base so one of the things that uh, I think I think it's Rob Pike that's, that's said it this way is that Much of the time, the constraints of the language require that we make too many decisions for which we know the least information at the very time that they're going to cause us the most trouble. And I, I hope did that come across clearly? Kind of. I'm going to take that as a no. So we frontload decisions that are difficult to change and that we're, we're unlikely to make correctly. Because we don't have enough information yet because you learn as you build that's emergent design mm-hmm. you, as you build so where do you draw the line I mean well, that, in, in, I, to follow that you could keep going going oh I still don't have enough information or I still don't have enough information so right. I guess you'd have to figure where to draw that I, line I, I I can say something about that because in most applications you have requirements and companies are come to me and says and they are giving me the requirements and they are saying can you help us to evaluate the architecture that we are doing and from my experience because I saw not one or two or three projects but uh, more than 100 different projects I uh, I can I, I can help them to understand or to give them from my experience and evaluate the what they're trying to do this is Some consulting that I'm doing regularly to companies, uh, even uh, uh, not to, tomorrow, but on Sunday, I have a new, co- new company that uh, came to me with the same, the same request. Uh, we're trying to evaluate microfrontends. Uh, we need some help. Can you help us? So one thing is you can consult with a consultant. Another way to, to do those things is uh, just a... Uh, To relay on the experience of the the developers or the the architect in your company or CTO whatever whoever is the, in charge of designing the system 
And you have to make those decisions, even though they might be wrong. But if you don't do that, there won't be any application in the end. So we will, we will have to live with the decision. It's like what I'm saying about whenever we are uh, picking a framework. Whenever you are picking a framework like Angular, React, Vue, or whatever, you're getting married with that framework. After you, you, you got married, it, you want, uh, uh, the diverse will be ugly if you want to move from one framework to another. But we are still doing that. You need to pick the technologies. You need to evaluate some architecture, create some architecture, even as Dan said, not creating an architecture is an architecture by itself. But in the end, somebody needs to draw the line. Where, where do you do the cat? I will add to that, that uh, and I think that this is something that AJ will happily agree with, is that you should always prefer small and simple. I've seen way too many situations in which front-ends were over-architected. It's much, you know, at the very least, if you choose a simple architecture and it ends up being the wrong one, well, you've spent less resources building it than if you've, you know, created a really complicated architecture and then it turns out to be the, the wrong one. And and simpler architectures also are easier to to mutate or enhance into various directions. So for example, I, I you know, and, and it's really unfortunate in my mind that a lot of the systems that we are currently using for modern web development actually encourage us to create really sophisticated architectures. So for example, in many cases, using an MPA type approach where each page is delivered separately is a much simpler type of a solution than implementing a single page application because you don't need to manage a data store that you know persists between pages. You just request additional information from the backend whenever you need more information. And go for it, AJ. For people that up, aren't up on today's latest buzzwords, MPA is the new buzzword that means website like we used to build in the 90s. Exactly. Just, just to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Rails yeah, developer in me is gratified that there's a term for it now. Yeah. And and it's... I mean, there's performance concerns there too if you're always having to go to your back end yeah. and I suppose then you could throw in things like Cloudflare or CDNs or... If you're bad at building whatever. architectures, no matter which architecture you pick, you can make it underperformant. <laughs> yes, that's true. But yeah. at the same time, there's ways to make it. Sometimes you have more foot guns, I guess. I if, think if you're going to work. But the reality, the unfortunate reality, when though, is that with when you look at the modern uh, application frameworks that are out there, the Next, the Nux, the Remix, the the, you know, the Svelte Kit, all of them. All of them encourage single-page applications. Some of them do it better than others, but at the end of the day, they all encourage that. And I find that to be a bit unfortunate because I do think that in many cases, having a simpler architecture, which is each page is delivered independently, is much easier and much simpler. And you're kind of being forced to use WordPress for that because there are no alternatives. <laughs> well, let's let's define page real quick because... Part of, part of the thing is that when you look at today's applications, they are Twitter, right? Twitter has one function. It's not something that's useful. It's not a productivity platform, right? It shows you stupid things 
that people that you don't care about say to make other people angry. That is what Twitter does, right? And it's not hard to do that. You just need to show a picture of a person so you can get an emotional response of, oh, I'm already going to agree or I'm already going to disagree. And then the words so that you can start forming your rational argument to how you reply. That's not a hard thing to build in a single page. Yeah, but... It, so what what what's, what is a different page? Well, let's put it this way. Most web app, most websites that are more than just content websites are about building forms, right? And putting in information and also viewing information. Well, whenever you click submit, that could theoretically be a page navigation. And mm-hmm. and but the reality is that these days it usually isn't. Usually these days it's JavaScript intercepting that button and then doing stuff with it and then sending some stuff to the back end and uh, but keeping some other stuff in the front end and doing a lot of complicated things. And and it, well, no, nobody wants to wait for the page reload just to see their angry response to somebody else's tweet appear below it. We want that instant. Well, and and that's the thing because if you think about who who created React, for example, it was Twitter. No, it was Facebook. No, no, it was no, the one they couldn't Facebook. acquire. Facebook. It, yeah, so it was Facebook, and and <laughs> React is a great tool for when you're building a Facebook. It's not necessarily such a great tool when you're building a blog site. And yet the reality is that these days, if you ask people, how are you building, you know, the devs, like we devs like to build our own blog sites, or our own blogging frameworks and whatnot. You know, what are you using? I'm using, yeah, yeah. I'm using Next.js. What is Next.js built on? You know, React. And, yes. and it's a single page application. Why is my blog a single page application? Why, when I navigate between blog posts, do I need to do it via an Ajax call to get the data and then render it on the client side instead of just getting the HTML from the from the server. Because Who's you don't want then? your you don't want to be doxxed. You want your own mistakes to help you. So if nobody can navigate to the page because there's no URL structure. Oh uh, no. Boom. These days there is a URL structure. <laughs> there, no, these no. No, let, no, no. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. Intercept the URL <laughs> with yeah, your yeah. router. Yeah, your exactly. I, I have a hard router. stock coming up, by the way. <laughs> so we need to derail back onto the topic and wrap up. Well, I, so one thing I, I wanted to say with the whole, you know, what's a different page? So I was I was hoping to evoke this, but you know, <coughs> whenever you have an idea in your head, you should just say it. Well, from, but yeah, from, it, just to say, a different page is when you have a different URL. Oh, whoa, those are fighting words. But uh, so you've got on Twitter, you've got the feed, you've got the messages, you've got the bookmarks, you've got the account. Basically, I would say anytime you have a user a profile or user account, that's a separate app. I. Whatever it is that your app does, unless your app is a CRM, managing user profiles is just a separate app. Don't don't try to put it in the main app. That that's I think that's the one of the most perfect examples of what should be a separate page is the user profile stuff. All right, folks. With that non sequitur, we're going to go ahead and do picks. <laughs> uh, so it is. Wait a minute. Before we go picks, uh, though, we we do need to give uh, Gil, I think, a chance to say some final words. Usually, you do give that yeah, option. Yeah, I agree. So, Gil, I do. Anything we missed? Any additional, you know, summary of information or 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 things you wanted to say and we neglected to say? I will do it short. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Let's do picks then. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and 
in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Dan, do you want to start us off with picks? Okay, for sure. So I really have, uh, okay, I have two picks this time. My first pick is this. I don't know if you know this, but approximately, well, almost exactly two months ago, 58 days, a very severe bug uh, having to do with uh, privacy was found in the IndexedDB API in Safari 15. Mm -hmm. Basically, when a table is, uh, is created in one frame or window of Safari, all other open windows and frames, etc., see the name of that table. So they don't see the content of the table, but they see the name of the table. Now, you might ask, like, why is it so bad? Well, because the name of the table can tell you which other sites are running in the other tabs. You're, you know, one tab is not supposed to know what you have open in the other tabs. Or even worse, sometimes the tables uh, contain information like the identifier of the, of uh, the, you know, your your ID within that other application. Probably not your your password, but but your account name. So you could know that, you know, in, in a different tab, the user is in, uh, let's say, in website X and their account within that website is Y, which is obviously information that you're not supposed to have about some other website. Now, on, I, on uh, Mac OS X, there's a very easy fix for this bug. And that fix is don't use Safari use some other <laughs> well because you know it's true because you know you know it's it's taking them over two months to fix it i gather that they're working on it you know eventually a fix will come out so so just use chrome or edge or firefox or brave or whatever for the time being and when uh, they come up with a fix you can always switch back the problem is that on ios you don't have any recourse because on ios all browsers on the inside are actually Safari. So on iOS, whether you're using Safari or Chrome or Firefox, it's actually Safari on the inside and you've got this bug. So we've got a really severe privacy issue affecting all browsers on iOS for the simple reason that on iOS, there is no browser choice. You are locked into Safari on iOS. And, you know, one of the reasons that they give for that is has to do with privacy and security. Well, here we see the exact opposite situation because of the lack of browser choice on iOS. So that would be my first pick. I'll give a link to, to the details of the story if anybody is interested in the technical details of what the actual problem is. My other pick has to do with the fact that uh, Amazon Prime is now finally available in, in Israel. And it's actually fairly cheap. And there were some things that I wanted to see. 
So I actually subscribe to Amazon Prime. And one of the things that I'm watching now that I would like to call out is Invincible. It's an animated uh, series about the uh, superheroes. And it's really out there in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the subjects that they cover and how gory it gets. It's definitely not something for the little kids, but it's really good and I'm enjoying it a lot. So that would be my second pick. And those are my picks for today. And uh, I will vouch for the, the second pick because uh, I saw the entire show and it's very No good. spoilers, <laughs> please. I'm only in the middle. I haven't said anything about it. I, I just said it's very good. <laughs> cool. Good deal. All right, AJ, what are your picks? Well, I've got some good ones for you today. So I, you know, t- I've talked about how I've upgraded my monitor setup and, and I love the, the Dell monitor, which I guess I'll just throw that link in there anyway. But also it's a little bit troublesome to figure out which Thunderbolt hubs and adapters to get because they thought, you know, USB 4 and Thunderbolt 4 and all that. It's just, it's just too many things multiplexed on top of each other and finding a hub that actually works and does the right thing is obnoxious. So I, I, I'm going to give you all a little cheat. If you're looking for a Thunderbolt hub, hub for one of the, the new M1 computers, there's the Sonnet Echo 5 and, uh, for just generic Thunderbolt hub that actually supports at least all of the Thunderbolt features that I'm using. Maybe it's missing some that I'm not, but it, it seems that they must have attention to detail because it has VRR support for DisplayLink. And then the Wavelink Thunderbolt 3 to display port adapter because that also has VRR support for DisplayLink. But I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's so hard, depending on what feature of Thunderbolt or USB 4 you're interested in, that you, the devices that you're connecting to support, maybe these won't work specifically for your device. But I, I ordered several of both. I, I, I basically ordered about $1,000 worth of adapters and sent them all back except for these two because these were the two that seemed to support all of my devices correctly with all of their features. And then on, on the, the topic of office upgrades, there's these little, I, I've been using the, oh gosh, I forget the name of it now, but that company that sends you those books every month that have all the office supplies in it, Uline, Uline. I've been using the Uline books to raise up my, my desk at the other office. And, you know, that works pretty good. I think the Uline catalog is great. And I think everybody should have a few Uline catalogs. They, they work great for blocking vents when, you know, it's summer and icy air is blowing or when it's winter and burning <laughs> hot air is blowing. They work great for raising desks. They work great for raising monitors. They're just nice, thick, sturdy catalogs. But, but, and all you need to do to get an unlimited supply of Uline catalogs is just do anything that classifies as registering a business in any way, shape, or form on any website or with any government, and you will just you will get an unending supply of them. They're I love them. They're great. But that's not actually what I was intending to pick. For the the desk, and it turns out these would probably work for couches and for other things as well. There's there's a company, I guess. I don't know what the company's called. Slipstick. Yeah, it's called Slipstick. And they make these little furniture lifts. They work for beds or desks or whatever, but they're great. They're great. They're they're stackable. You get a pack. It comes with eight of them. So you can choose how to distribute that because the desk at work had five legs instead of four because it's one of those weird shaped ones. I, I had to get two packs to start, but uh, you, know, you can raise your desk to one stack or two stack or three stacks, whatever. 
And uh, I just think that they're they're really awesome. So I'm I'm gonna pick the the slipstick furniture lifts. Other than that, fairly well, no, there's one other thing. So I gave my apology in the last episode to VAR for slandering it when it, it didn't deserve it. It VAR does not have any exceptions, it is entirely consistent. But I did a I did a presentation, a visual presentation with code examples on the cold hard truth about consulate and VAR. So if you want to check that out, I'm linking to that as supplementary material to the the last podcast where we discussed that 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 uh, my presentation fixes a few mistakes that I made and then and then other than that it's just the normal stuff webinstall.dev for all your tools creativecraftsmanship.com for good articles and videos on software engineering and you can follow my live streams and beyond code on YouTube Twitch and Twitter and all the things awesome Steve what are your picks all right the high point of the podcast, as always, the dad jokes. So I've got two, uh, I think, pretty decent ones today. Unmuting although... for maximum laughter. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Gil, one of the Gil, things I Gil, love Gil, to... you need to unmute in case you laugh. When you laugh. When you laugh. In case you laugh. <laughs> okay. So it goes. I love putting on warm underwear fresh out of the dryer. I mean, it feels good, right? When you put it on. Plus, it's super fun to look around the laundromat and guess who they belong to. <laughs> <laughs> okay that that one was clever okay and my drum joke's not working again i, I oh, didn't see so that long. one coming I, w- I didn't see that one coming all right so you're gonna have to imagine the drum joke i'm not sure why it's not working in riverside so i have a 10 year old son and when he was uh smaller he asked me where poo comes from i decided to be honest with him and after i explained he asked with a slightly terrified and complex look what about eeyore <laughs> <laughs> i i did see that one coming so Anyway, those are my uh, jokes for the day. All right. Nothing else you want to shout out about? Uh, No, nothing today. All right. Well, you can hear more of Steve's tortured soul on Views on View then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to throw out a few picks. I'm going to make it fast because I really do have to get over to this other thing at noon. First of all, I usually do a board game pick. And uh, while I was down at this funeral, my daughter brought up Candyland and wanted to play. So we played Candyland, my six-year-old and I. And yeah, it's a fun little game. Play with your your kiddos during the funeral. Um, so no, well, <laughs> actually, actually yes, because she was sick, so we stayed at my mother in law's while everybody else went to the funeral because it was my wife's family. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, and then other picks. I can't think of anything at the moment that I'm really jazzed about. Oh, I did listen to so the Brandon Sanderson uh, Skyward series. Uh, they released three novellas and one full-length novel and the novel was i don't it was it was uh entertaining and it moved along but it wasn't the best of that particular series as far as the rest of it goes yeah i really enjoyed the novellas actually they were pretty darn good so i'm going to shout out about those and just remind everybody to go check out top end devs gil what are your picks okay so uh, i'm going to pick something that came uh, came along with the chrome 97 the, the last version that they released uh, you have a new uh, chrome recorder uh, it's uh, currently experimental but uh, this is a very good idea that uh, and they started to implement. To clarify, enables you to. Re- uh, you kind of neglected to say it's in the Dev Tools in Chrome. It's part of the Dev yes. Tools. Sorry. So it's part of the Dev Tools. It's a new tab. It co- it is called Chrome Recorder. It enables you to record uh, uh, user flows and then to to run those user flows and see performance uh, uh, issues on those uh, user flows. 
I really think that it's a good idea. It can be very helpful. One of the, the major topics that uh, I'm always interested in is uh, performance tuning. So this is uh, related to uh, relates to that. The second pick, it's going to be a series that I started to see with uh, my dear ri- wife uh, on Netflix. It is called Blacklist uh, with James Spader. I won't so say anything good. about it. It's a very good, re- very good series. We are currently in uh, season uh, three. And uh, I, c- I can't say anything because I'm not going to do any spoilers. But uh, if you want to see a very decent series, thriller series, go and thrill and smart series, go to and see the blacklist with uh, James. I Peter. just want to add one more thing about that recorder tab in the DevTools. Uh, it has another cool feature in which you can actually export the recordings and then you could play them back in Puppeteer which makes it also a useful tool for building end-to-end scripts for end-to-end tests. Oh, nice. That sounds pretty awesome. My wife and I have been watching Blacklist, and we've been watching it on Netflix, not as it comes out every week. And so we just wait for the whole season to drop. And yeah, we're in the middle of season eight, I think, which is the latest one they have on Netflix. So whatever the latest one on Netflix is, that's when we're watching. And yeah, it's, it's been a really, really fun series to watch. So... Plus one on that. All right, Gil, if people want to find you online, where do they find you? At Gil Fink uh, in Twitter. That's the the main place. Uh, if you want to talk with me, DM me. I will try to answer you if, if you have anything uh, uh, any anything to, to ask. And you can also find me uh, in my email, gil at sparksys.com. This is my company email if you need any services of uh, web uh, consultant, uh, either in architecture, performance tuning, or anything else, I will be very happy to help. Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up right here. And until next time, Max out. Bye. Adios. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.